get going um, quickly here. I have, I, I have this for us. We're either going to end here because I ran out of time, or we're going to end here because I was able to get it all done. I would really like you to get this portion because it's significant. Of course, I, I wrote it, so I think it's extremely significant, right? But no, th- th- this is important to the overall argument. It's just we're going to be here if I um, take too long, which typically I do. I always feel that details matter, but um, sometimes I, I, I oftentimes feel too many of them into where then they almost don't matter at all. But um, it, I, I want to be helpful. This is our, our, our last sermon on the covenant of grace, so I, I want us to, to, to end in a good place in understanding this covenantal structure. Um, and, and then next week we'll start the covenant of redemption, and it'll be two sermons, I think, on the covenant of redemption, and then we'll be entering our series on Genesis, the book of Genesis, um, chapters 1 through 11. But just briefly by way of rehearsal, so I can try to make it to uh, the second ending, not the first, is just to bring you up to speed. Once again, last week that we looked at the very essence of the covenant of grace. We're in a study right now of the theological covenants of the Bible. We've looked at the covenant of works, which is critical, and then we're contrasting between covenant of works and covenant of grace, these two opposing uh, structures in covenant theology. And then the final one that kind of makes all of it possible is that final covenant, theological covenant, of the covenant of redemption. But as we looked at the very essence, the very fabric of the covenant of grace, we see that it is a unilateral promise of God's blessing. That's the essence of it. The very fabric, the oxygen of the covenant of grace is God's promissory and unilateral provision of his blessing. Again, last week as we look at how how do you describe the oxygen of the covenant or the very essence, the air you breathe in your life with Christ, the air that you breathe of this covenant of grace not only did we, see, did we get to it uh, uh, looking at Abraham, but then in the way that God drew Abraham out of Ur and spoke to him, hey, Abram, I'm going to make my covenant with you. Again, what? Yes, with you in this unilateral exchange. This is what I, God, am doing for you. This, that, that's the essence of this provisionary and promissory covenant known as the covenant of grace. But then we saw in the picture, not simply in the words of Genesis, in the calling out of Abraham from darkness and bringing him into light, but we saw it then as it moved forward into chapter 15 with the picture of the covenant-making ceremony between Abraham and God in Genesis 15. Now, you remember Abraham at that point of Genesis 15 was promised a people... So from Genesis 12 to Genesis 15, in this covenant, in this promissory note, Abraham was promised a people. This is what I'm going to do with you, Abraham. I'm going to give you a place, and I'm going to dwell among you as my very own presence will bring blessing to you and those who bless you. So again, Abram is given these promissory provisions unilaterally. Just stand there and watch. This is what I will do for you, is the nature and the oxygen of the covenant of grace. Now, to further explain how that then worked with Abram, God saying, I'll give you a people, I will give you a place, and I will be in the midst of you as the presence of power and blessing. We move to the covenant-making procedure. 
And that's Genesis 17, well, well, 15 from last week. And then this morning, we're going to look at Genesis 17 for a few moments. But right at the very moment of the covenant-making procedure, or the covenant-making ceremony, where they're going to ratify this covenant, they're going to make this covenant happen, where it would have been appropriate in that moment for Abraham, who is, as you recall, and is noted very obviously, the lesser party in the covenant-making procedure. Remember, God is making a covenant with Abraham. So it would have been right, right? Abram saying, how will I know, if we go back to Genesis 15, how will I know these things will occur to me? That you will unilaterally provide these blessings to me. How will I know? And it's striking, isn't it, that Abram asks that right after it, it, he is standing out in Genesis 15, 6 as the man of faith and the man of righteousness, by way of faith. His faith immediately wavers. Something about the fragility of our faith. Bold in one moment and, and questioning within, like, what, verse 6 and 7. How will I know that these things will, will, will befall me? How do I know you'll provide them? So God says, bring me these animals. And he lists the animals. Bring them to the sacrificial moment. Bring them to this ceremony. Cut them from stem to stern. Lay them out. Put an aisle in between. Abram would have been triggered to know this is a covenant-making ceremony, obviously. And I, lesser party, am to pass through the animals undergoing the covenant obligations. This is what would have made sense to Abram. I must pass through the animals. I must uphold the obligations, the weight of the covenant. But right at the moment where Abram would move, and, and he would say, okay, I know my next move, is to undergo the blessing and the cursing, the content of the covenant, whereby if I don't perform, you will do this to me. I put myself on the line. I'm willing to engage in this covenant. Right as he's to do so, which would have been very normal for the lesser party to undergo the weightiness of the covenant, God places Abraham in a deep sleep. You remember. Genesis 15, we see it. Abram goes into a deep, deep sleep. It creates the drama of the covenant-making procedure. Right at the, at the most critical moment of covenant ratification... Undergo the obligations, Abram. Put yourself in such condition. Abram hits a deep sleep, almost comatose-like state. So right at the moment where he's going to undergo the covenant, how will I know these things will be so? Split the animals, lay them there. Create a covenant-making ceremony. And then right is, is the lesser party would go right through Abram's honest back, paralyzed, looking on. Well, then who, who, what's going to happen next in the covenant-making procedure? Who's going to guarantee the outcome of this covenant? If Abram's laying there asleep, looking on, as the lesser party, isn't he to undergo the obligations of such a weighty covenantal engagement? A people, a place, God's very own presence of blessing. He lays there watching. Again, who would promise to fulfill the necessary conditions to make the covenant complete? Who's going to do it? And astoundingly, back in Genesis 15, astoundingly, as one author mentions, God himself walks through the torn animals. That's the answer to the question of the text, how will I know? That this is going to occur. What surety do I have that the the covenant will, will lay hold of me? That these blessings will befall me. 
God himself walks through the torn animals saying, quote, this is the author quotation, I will take on myself the conditions for fulfilling my covenant with you. Abram's the lesser party. I, 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 I'm supposed to. No. I myself will take on the conditions for fulfilling my covenant with you. And if they are broken, I will take the punishment for them. In other words, God signs the covenant in his own blood. You see, there's absolutely nothing that Abraham can do to secure the blessings of that covenant. That's why he lay there looking on. So how will I know that it's going to be secure? I promise and I pledge that I myself will fulfill the conditions of this covenant. I unilaterally, God says, will provide all that is required. And so we learn in this brief picture of Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 that through Abraham, or, or through Abraham, we learn that God, out of his mere good pleasure, and that's critical, out of his mere good pleasure, enters into a covenant of grace to deliver men and women out of the estate of sin and misery and bring them into an estate of salvation by way of a redeemer who is God himself. This is the oxygen that we breathe in the gospel. This is what he has done in us, <clears throat> whose faith resides in him. He has provided for you all that is required. And then he blesses it and bestows it upon you in his mere good pleasure. This is how we know these things will befall us, the promises of the gospel. This is how we know God underwent the obligations of the covenant and unilaterally provides them. He is our surety. Now, this one covenant of grace that we witness in Abram, we see it promised in Genesis 3, and then we see it witnessed um, in Abraham, as I have outlined for you. This one covenant of grace is the overarching structure of the entire Bible. It's significant. I wish I had more time to labor. Um, it, it's tricky um, preaching covenants. Um, it's, it's, it's hands down 10 times, 100 times, however, exponentially easier teaching them than preaching them. Uh, it, it just requires more nuance and further discussion of which we can't do in a moment like this. But I, I wish to impress upon you that this one covenant of grace, this, this unilateral promissory provisionary covenant that God himself guarantees unto the sinner is the overarching structure of the entire Bible. Each covenantal arrangement set forth in scripture um, bears out this one covenantal arrangement. I have a slide just briefly, um, <clears throat> one of a few that are coming. But if, if this could be helpful to you to, to look at as a covenantal arrangement, when I say to you, this one covenant of grace, so <clears throat> the, the red line up there, 
you, you can kind of chart in your mind, that red line I would label the covenant of grace. That, that for, this, for the purpose of this chart, that red line is the covenant of grace. Where, where the spiral kind of comes together, um, or whatever you'd call that angle there, where it comes together, where the covenant of grace red line is beginning, and they pinch together, <coughs> excuse me, where they pinch together, right before that, if you were to kind of chart in your mind a Bible, and you were to take your Bible and you were to lay it on this chart, where, where exactly are we at in the Revelation at this point, the way we're looking at it? The, Bible, the portion of Genesis 3.15, where God promises to Adam and Eve, this is what's going to happen in redemptive history moving forward. Now you're looking at the arrow going this way, going from here where we are now, going this direction across the pages of each epic of biblical history. This is what I'm going to do. So the announcement of Genesis 3.15 would be right at the very point at which this, um, th this, this, um, the two angles come together. I, I don't know. I don't do geometry, and I don't know how to label the angle. I always call it a spiral, but I know a spiral functions differently. But you get the idea. Where it comes to a point, right before that, that, that is pre-fall data. So, so off the page is pre-fall data. That's Adam and Eve in the garden. And then what you have is you have the fall take place. We've already covered that entire drama. The covenant is broken. There's a covenant of works. Adam, God enters into covenant of works with Adam. He breaks it. Adam breaks it. The fall. We all know that. Then there's this promissory note, Genesis 3.15, and that is the pinpoint. Genesis 3.15, this promise. This is the, one, of the lady, one of Eve's offspring is going to slay the dragon. That's what's going to occur. That this is going to happen in time. There'll be enmity between your offspring and her offspring. Well, that enmity and all that drama is taking place across your pages of your Bible. So Adam is in this covenant of grace arrangement that was announced to him at Genesis 3.15. You remember, he responds in faith to that word. Do you remember the evidence of Adam's faith? Naming his wife Eve, the mother of the living he believed that redemptive history will continue. And there's going to be enmity, just as God said, between my offspring and the other offspring. And God has promised us that he will crush this dragon. He will crush this serpent's head. Adam is under that post-fall. He enters into that new covenant arrangement known as the covenant of graciousness. He begins by faith resting upon the promises of God. God spoke words to Adam, and Adam responded in faith. He and Eve together. And then the drama of the offsprings begins. You see Cain and Abel. You see Seth born to their family. You see from this lineage then appear Noah on the scene. People begin to call out into the name of God as you move across the drama of the pages of scripture. This covenant of grace is working. God is calling people out of darkness into light through promises that he is making, promises he is upholding. So from Adam, and then you see the next figure there, which we're dealing with just briefly now, and, and we'll handle him this morning, is Abraham. Abraham is that next massive figure covenantally, where we see not only was the covenant promise made in Genesis 3.15, but it's kind of clarified and codified and, 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 and particularized in Abraham, where there's, Abraham, this is what I'm doing for you, and I'm going to give you a sign of guaranteeing it. So from Abraham, then Moses. Now, you see, the covenant of grace is continuing. You have Moses and the people of God in that arrangement in the covenant of God's graciousness, making promises and keeping promises. All announced in Genesis 3.15. 
I will do this. And then you move to David and, and another major epic in redemptive history is with David in the covenant of grace. You remember there's a promise of a king and a kingdom. And then there's you. And uh, here, Lord's table. Remember, this language of Lord's table is the new covenant in my blood for you. But it's not new as in like I thought of it today. It's new and it's dynamic of fulfillment and blessing, but it belongs to the one covenant promised in Genesis 3.15. So all that to say, as you'd consider how your Bible is functioning in this one covenant of grace as that single red arrow or that single red strand that really peels and cuts across all the major epics of redemptive history and includes you if your faith does rest upon Jesus Christ is what I'm putting forward is in essence the covenant that God gives to Abraham, announced to Adam, clarified in Abraham, is the same covenant that is offered to us through the blood of Jesus Christ. It is the element of the new. The new is a ministry of the one covenant of grace. It's the same covenant of grace that has called men and women out of darkness and into his marvelous light since Genesis 3.15 and continues the preaching of the gospel today. Their stewardships, epics, eras of that one fabric and that one promise of a redeemer and a mediator. Now, as is often the case, now that I have thoroughly insisted for two sermons now, that there are absolutely no conditions set forth in the covenant of grace. It's unilateral. It's promissory. It's fully provisionary. What God requires, he so also does provide. Now that I have thoroughly convinced you, if you're following, is that there is absolutely no condition set forth in the covenant of graciousness. It's not a covenant of works at all. It's a covenant of pure provision. I want to explain for the next few moments the conditions of the covenant of grace. Since I have thoroughly insisted there are none, it's time for us to discuss them. It's often like that, right? It's always like a both and. It's always like a trickier than a single statement. So it is with the covenant of grace. Lest I give you the impression that all we do in the covenant of grace is you lay there. And in and, and some manner, God works in his sovereign grace. He works, and therefore you robotically rise from the dead. That there is absolutely, in a sense, no engagement that one has with the Lord. He simply acts upon them, and there is no engagement. There is no response. There is no condition whereby they acknowledge him. Let me move forward to point to the conditions in the covenant of grace. Turn to Genesis 17, just for a moment, please. Turn to Genesis 17 to look more carefully at this gracious covenant as it unfolds from Genesis 15 now into Genesis 17, where we find the conditions of that covenant of grace set forward. And then I will conclude by pointing out the conditions that lie before us in this same one covenant of grace. If you're in Genesis 17, I'm going to um, read the whole text just for context's sake so you can stick with the whole text. But we're really going to zero in on verses 9 through 14. But I just want to read the whole text so you see what's going on in Genesis 17. Remember, what we're doing is we're looking at the conditions set forth in the covenant of grace. Let me begin with you in verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. 
walk before me, be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I've made you the father of a multitude of nations. Note just so far, note as you go through the text, the, the unilateral nature of God's provisions. This is what I'm doing to you. This is what I'm doing in you. This is what I'm doing for you. That, that, that's the essence of the covenant. But then it takes a little bit of a shift as we move to verse 9. So please note the way that God is providing. Verse five, uh, verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. Great. It makes sense, right? Verse 1 through 8 so far, we're firing on all cylinders. We're like, yeah, that, that totally works with what we're saying here. This unilateral, promissory, and fully provisional covenantal arrangement that God is making with Abraham of graciousness. I will do this for you and for those little ones behind you. I will do it. And you think, okay, great. This is all working so far. Verse 8, verse 9. And God said to Abraham, as for you... In this covenantal arrangement, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. Wait a minute, how is that working in the unilateral arrangement, in the promissory note, in the full provisions? You and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you. And your offspring after you. Okay, okay, so, so we're entering into, here, here we're, we're right at that, that, that's the kind of, we could read that as a preamble, right? A, a preamble to the, to the situation. This is what, this is my covenant that I'm making with you and those little guys behind you. This is how we're working it out. And this is how you will keep it. Okay, I'm listening, I'm ready. How will I keep it? Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and that shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money, from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. 
he has broken my covenant. Now, if you notice here, what ratified the covenant, God made all the promises of one through eight, and then he tells him how to keep the covenant. This is how you're going to do it. How? What, what makes the covenant in force? What, what is the binding right or ritual whereby this covenant is formalized and constitutionally stabilized in me and in you? How is it? What is the right? The binding arrangement is circumcision. This is how you'll keep my covenant. As for you, you keep it this way. How will I keep it? How will I meet the obligations of this covenantal arrangement? You will be circumcised. This is the in-time element of the covenant that is binding between Abraham and God, his offspring and God. This must absolutely be obeyed. This is how you will keep it. Every male among you must be circumcised. Now, I have one other slide because, the, I, I, right, we're saying it's fully provisional. Um, go to the definition of, of covenants. It should be next, hopefully, in the order. This is where we began uh, some five or six weeks back. What is a covenant? How do we identify a covenantal arrangement in Scripture? Here it's easy because it says this is the covenant. We're making a covenant. So we're like, oh, yeah, obviously, here's a covenant. Here's a broad definition of this at work. So the fact that Abraham is in a covenantal arrangement with God and God here places obligations on Abraham in that arrangement shouldn't really be that big of a shock to us, right? It's just that I've labored time over time explaining that there are no obligations to it. But there are. And we, we shouldn't be surprised because that's a very basic concept that belongs to covenant relations. There's obligations. There's binding aspects. So here the definition we'd lay right on top of Genesis 17 and we would be all right. A covenant is a binding relationship between God and human beings. Abram, Abraham, this is my covenant that I make with you. Okay? You're going to do it. Yes, and I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a nation. I'm going to make you a peoples. I'm going to give you a place. And I'm going to be your presence. I'm going to be among you for blessing. Okay, great. So we have a binding relationship where this is what you're going to do. Here's the content of the covenant. Un unravel the scroll. Here's the blessings for obedience. What must I do to inherit the blessing? I must be circumcised. All the males need to be circumcised. And then notice, again, further in our definition, this is very standard covenantal arrangement, right? Um, there's going to be a curse laid upon anybody who disobeys. Look carefully, again, at verse 14. This is, uh, this is how you can break the covenant that is being outlined here, the covenant of God's graciousness. This, this, this promissory covenant can be broken. And any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off. Isn't it interesting wordplay? You must cut yourselves. Anybody who won't cut themselves is cut off. Not of himself, but from his people. Because he has broken my covenant. And so if we have anything so far in the covenant of grace, this much is clear. Circumcision is no small matter. Rather, as one author notes here about this text, circumcision is the difference between keeping God's covenant and therefore receiving eternal life 
in the paradise with God or being cast out from all the intended blessings. Yeah, so circumcision is a big deal. And we're here at this point where we see clearly there are conditions laid out in the covenant of grace. What's the big deal that there's a condition added? It is this thought that the covenant can be broken. That the covenant of God's graciousness between you and he could be broken. Now, it begs to be asked at this point. Let me just read the text once more and move forward with a question that we must explore. It's begging to be addressed. Verse 12. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. This is the deal. That's how it's going to work. Every male throughout your generations, whether he's in your house, out of your house, your own offspring, borrowed money, whatever the arrangement is, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Like, like there's no, no, no waffling here. You kind of can't do it and be fine. It is the baseline condition for this arrangement. And you think, wow, that's, that, 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 that is in a sense stunning. Particularly when he gets to the fact of verse 14 and says, by the way, a curse will lay upon anyone who doesn't do it. It, it, it begs that we ask the question, what is circumcision then? And that it comes to mean so much in the covenantal arrangement. What is it? If it's this massive deal, it, it is the obligation to Abraham in the keeping of a covenant of graciousness, to all these tremendous blessings, the gateway is circumcision. And if you don't, you're out. Like, not just kind of out, but we're talking like premature dead out. You're gone. Banished from all the blessings. What is circumcision then? That it comes to be such a big deal. Turn to Romans 4, if you would, and that's where we pick up with the reading that was here just a few moments ago. Go to Romans 4, if you would, so we can briefly describe. What is circumcision? Why is it such a big deal? I'm going to begin reading verse 1 of chapter 4, where Paul is clearly making a comment on this particular text, on the idea of circumcision. And I know that probably you have not come to this place before where you've often explored the depths of circumcision. And you've sat and thought, what is circumcision? How is it working? What is the big deal of it? It's more kind of an assumed historical situation uh, than thinking about what it theologically translated as. This, This is significant for us to grapple with. Um, Paul makes a huge comment on it here in Romans 4. I'll begin verse 1, and I'm going to skip around just a little bit. But follow the text, the argument of the text with me. Verse 1 of Romans 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham? That's kind of what we're asking. What shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. So so think about the covenantal contrast, right? That that, that is an arrangement known as the covenant of working, or the covenant of works. 
someone was seeking by, by this covenantal arrangement to work out their justification. Paul is saying, that is not the case here. That is not what happened with Abraham. So, so once again, so, so well then what do we say was gained by Abraham? Our forefather according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does scripture say? How, how are we to conceive of the man Abraham in his relationship to God? That it would be clear to us in our relationship to God. What, what do we say of Abraham? What does scripture say? And he quotes here. Genesis 15, Abraham believed God. He believed what God told him. And it was counted to him as righteousness. He believed. Now to the one who works, which is set in direct contrast to believing. But in contrary, to the one who then is working. His wages are not counted as a gift. They're not bestowed upon him benevolently, but they are his due. He earned them. But we're talking about Abraham here. And to the one who does not work, but in contrast to working, trusts him who justifies the ungodly. Do you you see the stroke there? What is it that Abraham believed? That God justifies the ungodly. Do you see, this is the contents of what we're talking about in the covenantal arrangement that is still unto you in the new covenantal arrangement. This one fabric of covenantal arrangement of faith that rests upon God as its terminal point based upon the promises he has made. Abram believed God justifies the ungodly. Verse 5 once more, and then I want to jump through the text, skip over the David argument. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith, that is what we learn about Abraham, is counted as righteousness. Verse 10, I want to jump to the argument where he picks back up in verse 10, skipping over David. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? The righteousness. How how, how was it counted? When God accounted it or credited it or looked upon Abram in this condition, this righteousness, was it before he was circumcised or was it after? What does it matter? Because we're asking, what is circumcision? Notice the argument he's putting forward. It was not after, but before he was circumcised. Now, now that stroke of verse 10 tells us something about circumcision then. And its relationship to justification. Because Abram was counted in credited righteousness before he was circumcised. Verse 11 is our thunderbolt. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith 
while he was still uncircumcised. You see, why is circumcision such a big deal? Or, 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 or why has it come to such a severity to Abraham and his offspring? To the point if he's not circumcised, if one does not receive the sign of circumcision, he is out, utterly out of the covenant. Paul makes clear in Romans 4.11, it's a big deal because it is a sign and a seal of the righteousness of God that Abraham received through faith. You see, in other words, circumcision at its heart As outlined in Genesis 17 and here in Romans 4, circumcision at its very heart is an act of obedient faith in the promises of God. There's an interesting aspect as you watch it develop across redemptive history. If you, if you go over and you go through the conquest and, and you enter, enter into the book of Joshua, right when they enter into the land and they're getting ready in enemy territory, it's a great scene, right? You think you enter into enemy territory, put it in modern-day warfare. Let's say you, know, you, you land in a hot zone, and, and, you're, and, and you, you know you're not welcome, right? And things are getting ready to get dicey, and it's going down. And you know it, and, and, and the people in this particular land know it, and, and, and it's just now, it's just an it's inevitable uh, point of collision. And God says to you, great, all you men warriors... You've entered into enemy, enemy territory. First order of business is to, you know, um, load out all your guns. Like, get ready, get the ammo ready, put in the magazines, make sure that your scopes are working, because th this only makes sense, right? And you're like, oh, yeah, first marching orders. Totally got it. Yeah, let's pack out our ammo. Make sure we have good rounds. Make sure that our guns actually fire. Make sure we're ready to engage the enemy. Make sure we understand the landscape. Sure, sure, sure. That's all good ideas. That seems like necessary next steps. Or he says, no, instead, everybody sit down and circumcise themselves. Right, you just, you just like, you know, sailed down the ropes from a, a Apache helicopter. Everybody just sailed down the ropes and like your bags are down and you're like doing this number. He's like, okay, great. They're just over the berm. Circumcise yourselves. You're like, that does not seem like next steps. That, that, would, that would not make sense right now in what we think we're doing. But that's indeed what they do when they cross the Jordan River. In Joshua, you can see it in chapter 4 or 5. They enter enemy territory in the first moves. Everybody's got to be circumcised. Which you realize at that point in time, what the case that I'm building here is it's an act of faith to do so. It wasn't simply an external marker of a theocratic place in time. It was an act of faith. Nobody circumcising themselves in enemy territory, where they are laid bare, literally, and they're going to rest up for a good seven days. That's probably not the best move. Definitely not if you're subject to circumstance and time. You must believe the God who drew you out and the promises that he has given you in order that you would obediently act upon those promises and so circumcise yourselves in enemy territory. This land is going to be ours. 
we're going to have victory. And we're claiming this land by circumcision. That must mean we believe God has given us this land. As he promised to our father Abraham in the covenant of grace. The sign that we belong to that covenant is circumcision. So we could, in some sense, even say circumcision is on its own as big of a deal here in Genesis uh, 17 and in Romans 4, as big of a deal as it is, circumcision on its own is not that big of a deal, actually. Faith is. And that's Paul's point in Romans 4. You see, in the one covenant of grace, the covenant that God establishes with Abraham and the covenant that he has established with each and every one who is here who claims to believe in Jesus Christ. In this covenant arrangement, in faith, we look to God for the righteousness that he requires. And so if you consider Abraham and you look at him here in the covenantal context, and he hears, this is how you'll keep the covenant, by circumcising all the males. And anybody who doesn't is out because it was faithless. It's not simply about which part of flesh comes off. If you don't, you don't believe. So as we see here in Abraham, the man of faith that we call him, Paul, Romans 11, what shall we say of our father Abraham, the man of faith? Faith was an empty hand. This is critical. Please hear because it duresses your faith. Right? Father Abraham. What we see in Abraham, the man of faith, is that faith itself was an empty hand that received God's blessings, not the busy hand that earned them. That's what faith is. The empty hand that receives, not the busy hand that works. For he who works, his wages are given him not as a gift, but what is due him. But what shall we say of Abraham? It was an empty hand that received, not the busy hand that earned them. I only made it to ending one. I dare I'm on the precipice to push into ending two, but I don't have time. I'll mix ending one and ending two here in conclusion then. There is but one covenant of grace. Whose mediator and redeemer is Jesus Christ, our one Lord. We'll move on to the covenant of redemption and see that he undergoes the covenant curses in order that he might provide for you the covenantal blessing. There is but one covenant. So much so that we could look at Adam, the prior slide, we could look at Adam, 
we look at, um, yeah, thank you. I was almost going to forget who we were talking about this morning. Adam, Abraham, Moses, and all the people of God that rescued them. David, the new. That one red line, every one of those people could confess with us right here, right now. The same testimony of Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. That's the church of the living God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 in conclusion. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Is faith a work? Is it a condition that I must merit? No. Because remember, in the covenant of grace, what's required is also provided. So for by grace you have been saved through faith, the empty hand that receives. And this, this empty hand of faith that receives is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of working. So that no one may boast. Let us pray. Father,